thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Chris, uh, good to have you back. Hey, good to be here, Kino. Good morning. Good morning. And uh, we've got a question for you, sir. Um, and that's, uh, I think, a very pertinent one. Were there any medical reasons why the English took their medals off and did not carry the silver around their necks? Not really. Silver is pretty well tolerated, actually, same as gold. And in fact, it's really good for antimicrobial purposes. Doctors and technologists are now investigating the prospect of using silver nanoparticles as a way of rendering surfaces resistant to infection in places like operating theatres. Also fridges, people are experimenting with spray-on nanoparticles that you can use to coat the interiors of fridges. And the rationale for doing that is that any bacteria that try to grow in the fridge or any fungi that try to grow in the fridge are killed by the silver and this stops the prospect of, say, a bacterially contaminated foodstuff in the fridge contaminating other food next to it or food that you then put there subsequently. So silver's actually pretty good in terms of keeping us safe. There are some nutcases online who have have heard about swallowing silver. And there was this guy who was making a solution of silver and swallowing it, and he went bright blue. He ended up with argyria, is the medical condition. If you have too much uh, silver in your body, it can actually deposit in the skin. And in the same way as a photograph, when you get light on the silver, it makes it go dark. It made his skin go blue, and it looks like a smurf. So if you look up Argeria <laughs> online, you'll find the picture of this chap who, who did ingest a bit too much silver, and it didn't kill him, but he went blue. Okay, so the reason they didn't wear the medals then would not be anything scientific. It's just that they weren't very happy losing to the Springboks. No, I think that's probably more likely. And we, I've tried to steer clear of the rugby, okay? I've tried to stay off the subject. <laughs> I knew I was going to have a hard week. <laughs> We still love you, Chris. I, tr- I tried do. to deflect and, t- and talk about the science, and you brought it back. No, honestly, when we were watching it, I said to her, I'm going to have such yeah. a hard week next week. They, they're not going to let me go. They're not going to let this go next week. I'm, they're going to give me such a hard time, a harder time than, than they gave him on the pitch. They're going to give me a hard time on the radio. Okay, we'll move on to other questions then. Now, Chris, how do we know that what we are smelling is perceived the same way by another person or by another animal? That is a question that's come through. I'm not sure if you can make heads or tails about that one, but yeah. Well, the point that's being made is in the same way as when I show you something, and let's say I show you a red T-shirt, and I say, what colour is that? And you say, oh, it's red. And I say, yeah, I agree, it's red. Why we agree it's red is because someone has shown you that in the past, that colour, and said that's red. And they've shown me the the same thing and said, yeah, that's red. And we've learned Mm. that that perception in our brain is what we call red. That doesn't mean, though, that the thing that's appearing as what I'm viewing the world as is the same as Ah. you. And although we can show that the same assemblages of neurons in the same parts of the brain are lighting up in the same way when we show that stimulus... What we don't know is what our own internal experience of that is. Is what I call red the same as what you call red? And in the same way, we have been taught to smell things and and ascribe names to smells because that's what our parents, friends and colleagues have said. Oh, this smells like 
X. Actually, I don't know if the smell experience that goes blasting off in my head when I sniff a nice cup of coffee, is that the same experience that you have? We agree it's nice, but we've no way of actually knowing if the experience we experience is the same because your brain creates the world that you live in and mine creates the world I live in. And we've no way of knowing whether our two worlds are the same. We just know that we agree on the shared experiences. Ah, it's, well, similarly, then I think this is a follow-on question from someone else, mind you. Um, why do some people enjoy eating smelly things such as Limburger cheese, uh, for example? Are they wired? I mean, are they are they wired differently? Is the question? Maybe they have more self-control. I know someone who said to me once, there are very few cheeses that defeated him, but uh, there was one piece of gorgonzola that he bought once and it it smelt so bad he couldn't actually bring himself to eat it. But then uh, there was a comedy series, very famous a number of years back, where the lady in that said, uh, the the, the person comes in and says, where's my gorgonzola? And the woman says, I couldn't stand the smell anymore, so I ate it uh, to get rid of the smell. And the thing is that we, we all have different thresholds and tolerances for these things. We also have different perceptions of things we find appealing and things we find unappealing. And the interesting thing about Limburger cheese is that it does smell like feet. And people have done a, yeah. an, an assessment of the um, spectrum of molecules that are produced by that cheese and the spectrum of molecules that you find on a pair of smelly, sweaty feet. And they're very similar. And this is because many of the bacteria that feast on the bacterial banquet going on in your feet, dead skin cells, sweaty feet, other kinds of detritus that you've trodden in, those bacteria are the same ones in some cases or very similar to the ones that are in the cheese-making mixture. So not surprisingly, they impart the same whiffs to it. Why some people will like that and others don't, I don't know. A mosquito loves the smell of Limburger cheese uh, as it loves the smell of sweaty feet. People have actually done the research showing that, that, that the, the Limburger cheese smells attract mosquitoes. So, uh, it, you know, maybe people have something in common with a mosquito who like these sorts of cheeses. I don't know. I'm sure people who love eating Limburger cheese love smelling their own feet. Let's go to Terry. Terry in Hart Bay. Good morning. Good morning to you. Um, I would like to know, could you give me the shelf life of multi-grade engine lubricating oil? The shelf life? Okay. Yeah, you know, if if it's in a sealed can. In a sealed can, okay. Yeah, hi Terry. The answer is that the reason that um, anything would have a shelf life is if there are low-grade chemical reactions going on that change the chemical composition. And I don't know if that's the case with these oils, but if you keep them sealed, the most common sort of reaction that's going to go on, because these oils are pretty resilient because they've got to survive in very harsh conditions in an engine. So arguably the temperature being much lower as it is on a shelf, and if you've got a sealed pot of this stuff without the absence of, in the absence of oxygen, which the seal ensures, the, de- the decomposition the decomposition of that oil will be very low. I think it's probably fine. There is a difference, though, between winter and summer oils, especially in countries that have, or parts of countries, where you'll get high summer temperatures and very low winter temperatures. And although these oils are multi-grade very frequently, which means they contain constituents that are runny at low temperatures and and, um, other constituents that are that stay viscous at higher temperatures so that they they operate across a broad range of engine operating conditions they do nevertheless change the recipes in some places in summer and winter 
because otherwise your engine's going to be trying to pump round rock when when it ah. tries to start because the oil becomes like treacle in in extremely cold weather and it won't lubricate properly and it also makes it very hard on the oil pump to push the stuff round. So they do put constituents in there that mean the oil operates in a runny way over a very broad range of operating and starting temperatures. So your oil on the shelf may have been made for a certain climate at a certain time of year so you need to check that but most of the oils these days are really very good especially the synthetic ones and i, I suspect that a yeah. the, the rate of deterioration will be low and b it, it's probably going to be absolutely fine all year round these days another question from sue what exactly are chemtrails and why is this issue so controversial hello sue Chemtrails are the things that when we look up in the sky and you see a streak across the sky of white stuff looking like cloud, those are chemtrails and they've been left by aeroplanes and when an aeroplane goes flying along, the jet engines are burning hydrocarbon fuel. They're using something similar to kerosene that you put in your domestic heating boiler. It's very similar actually in composition to diesel really and the jet engine burns this hydrocarbon. When you burn a hydrocarbon, you liberate CO2 from the carbon and H2O, oxygen, coming in from the air plus the hydrogen, which makes water. And the hot gas comes out of the back of the engine and because there's a lot of water in there, as soon as it sees the cold atmosphere and the temperatures that the height these, fl- these aeroplanes are flying might be as low as minus 50, um, when it sees that very cold air, this causes the water to condense into droplets and then freeze and so you get a cloud. And it's a cloud of ice particles, and uh, they go across the sky. And people are worried about these sorts of things because they are depositing these particles high up at certain layers of the atmosphere, and there's a concern that they could have impacts on the environment. Uh, I've got Hassi. Hassi is in Grossi Park. Good morning, uh, sir. Good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, I'm a diabetic. I use uh, insulin, and I use what they call a pen set where the uh, uh, insulin capsule is in. Now, I have to attach a needle to that pin. Now, when I used to buy these needles, they would come in a concealed box, little packet box, and it would have an expiry date on it. Now, I cannot understand why a needle, which is steel, Mm. and its plastic attachment to screw it to the pin has an expiry date. That's a good question. Um, Yeah, Chris? Well, I had a bottle of water the other day, and that had an expiry date on it too. And you think the water we've got on Earth is, in some cases, 4.5 billion years old. So I'm not really sure why water should go off anytime soon. But I think it's one of these things that, under legislation, foodstuffs, drugs, certain pieces of equipment have to have a shelf life. And this is actually to protect us from unscrupulous retailers who might have things loitering on shelves, falling apart, kept in a back room for donkey's ages, and then they dish them up and sell them as though they're new. And in fact, that A, they might not be calibrated in, into the same rules and specifications of, of a modern piece of equipment. They might have deteriorated in the meantime, etc., etc. So to be safe, you do have to put some kind of timestamp on these things and say this is when we guarantee as a manufacturer and as a legal enforcer that these things are safe to use. And outside that, if you choose to use it, that's your risk. It's to, it's to protect them because then there is a line in the sand. Beyond this, we're not saying anything about the safety of that piece of equipment. Ryan is in Simonstown. Ryan, good morning. 
Hey, good morning, and good morning, Naked Scientist. Hi, Ryan. I just had a, a quick question. You were talking about the medical benefits of silver, and um, I've been on the internet to try and research this myself, but colloidal silver, I'm wondering if that actually has any true medical benefits because people are putting that in their ears and doing all kinds of wonderful stuff with it, but I'm not really sure if it actually works. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, it did, it did turn that gentleman blue, and if, you, if everyone wants to follow who isn't already at Naked Scientists on Twitter... I will put a picture at the end of this programme of the gentleman who overdid it with the colloidal silver and turned himself into... He looks like Papa Smurf, like a sort of blue Father Christmas. <laughs> so, um, to, at Naked Scientists, after the programme, I'll put the picture up. The answer to this is, you know, I said earlier, silver is really interesting. It has this interesting chemistry, and people have known about this for thousands of years. There is documented evidence that people were putting silver and, say, silver coins or pieces of silver metal into water and exposing it to sunlight and the silver catalyzes the creation of reactive oxygen species from air that's in the water oxygen that's in the water in the presence of sunlight and kills microbes now that's great outside the body but there's no evidence that putting this stuff inside the body is going to help you or be good for you so i would say it's safer to keep the silver on the outside doing its antimicrobial job i wouldn't eat it i don't think your body is at any time going to suffer from a silver deficiency your wallet might and certain presidents of of certain (laughs) countries wallets occasionally find themselves um, in a much healthier state when they've got lots of other people's silver in them um but not your body (laughs) we have a president like that no you haven't have you we had, we had. We no, had I'm sure not. I'm sure that's not true. Uh, could have been, could have been. I've got to go and research that. Uh, but Ryan, thank you very much for that. People love the whole smelly odour thing this morning. Um, here we go. Why, is, why are people's body odour considered attractive to others? There's a range of, of meanings to body odour because there are some whiffs that come off of us that are clearly unpleasant, but there are some smells that are not so unpleasant. And these are more subliminal smells that we're not consciously smelling, but probably we are smelling. And we were having this conversation in a pub last night. I was was out in London. I was giving a talk, actually, about herpes viruses for a company. And um, this is the herpes simplex virus that causes cold sores, incidentally. And, And the conversation strayed onto when we meet people and our behaviours that we all do without realising it. And I told them a story about a gentleman I interviewed who's in Israel who was doing research on what people do when they meet new people. And his experiment was to put a camera in a room and have a, a researcher sit in the room and then a whole bunch of volunteers would be ushered into the room one after another and the researcher had been told either to shake their hand or not to shake their hand. The participants have been told this was merely a a, a study in which someone was interviewing them about a few things. So they didn't know why they were being studied and they didn't know that they were being watched. And there was this really interesting finding that in the cases where the people had their hands shaken, the hand that had been shaken spent significantly more time in the subsequent few minutes next to the person's nose than when they hadn't had their hands shaken. And they also got them to wear devices that would tell whether they were taking a breath and so they could tell that not only when their hand was shaken did they put their hand near their face they sniffed their fingers subconsciously many times after shaking the person's hand now why are they doing that what they're doing and when we're shaking someone's hand when we're going in for the peck on the cheek when you greet someone in that lovely way what we're doing is we are sampling the aroma that's coming off that person and we are making an interpretation about them from it
And smell is a really powerful sense. Now, in humans, it's not as powerful as, as it perhaps used to be, or, or in some animals like dogs and mice, for example. But these other animals take it to the extreme. We use this as a really useful indicator of whether we like that person, whether they smell healthy or not, and what they smell of. And we can make decisions about people, whether, whether they're closely related to us or not. That's certainly um, something that could be interpreted from a smell and how healthy they are. And therefore, we're sizing them up as a potential mating partner because if they smell healthy and they smell different to us, then they're going to have a good genetic diversity and, and they're going to be a, a very good mating partner compared to someone who's closely related and less healthy. And so that's why we all go around sniffing each other and we, we, we like the smells. The body odour's not so good, but the other smells that are there, we don't realise it, but we love those. And I guarantee if you watch yourself, you'll catch yourself doing it. Someone walks in and out of a room and you'll find yourself going <laughs> and having a good sniff. And let's listen to yet another question. Good morning, Chris. Please tell me, if you take fruit, say a banana, and you peel it, the moment you have peeled it, is the inside of the skin perfectly sterile, and perhaps also the fruit itself, and could the inside of the skin then be used as a sterile dressing on a wound. Cheers for now. Mm. Chris? I think that one has to be very, very careful with words like perfectly sterile because this means a very specific thing. There are no microorganisms there at all. Now, fruits and vegetables and our own bodies, in fact, are very good at keeping microbes in the, in the right places because microbes in the wrong places can cause illness. And in the same way that we get infections and wound infections and impetigo and so on, plants also are going to fall victim to bacterial attack and fungal attack. And they have an immune system, not quite the same way that ours works, but plants have an immune system as well. So they have various ways of keeping microbes out of the right bits of themselves. And this includes having various layers and, and a skin like we do. But it's not perfect. And if you look at various plants, you can find, for instance, root vegetables. If you spray sewage as a fertiliser on the ground, people think, oh, it's OK, I'll wash the vegetables that have come out of the ground. They'll be OK. But actually, there's people have found evidence that the microorganisms in, say, in, say sewage can get into the surface flesh of a carrot, for example, and you can find those recoverable and viable organisms with inside, inside the flesh of the vegetable. So I'd be very, very cautious about saying that the inside of a banana is perfectly sterile. It's quite possible that small breaches in the skin of the banana will have allowed ingress of fungi and other microorganisms, but they may well be being held at bay by the anatomy of the banana and the other immune defences of the banana. And, and once you peel the banana, then they would begin to grow, but they're still there nonetheless. That said, they may well not be the kinds of microbes that would be of any harm to us whatsoever because these sorts of environmental microorganisms are very poorly adapted to grow in a human body so they, they might not be able to cause a wound infection in us or, or any harm to us anyway but I would be very careful about using phrases like perfectly sterile because uh, there are very few things on, on the planet that really are. Another one here, WhatsApp question. My boyfriend's elderly parents are convinced that hiccups are seriously dangerous for adults. <laughs> Is there any truth to this? Dr. Google disagrees, and I cringe every time they freak out if I hiccup. Well, hiccups, the, the fancy medical term is singultus, is the word we use ah. to describe 
hiccups and there have been individuals with intractable cases of hiccups. I think that the world record is someone who had hiccups almost continuously for 76 years or, or thereabouts. Uh, and I suspect it probably was quite disabling for that person. But hiccups are a natural phenomenon. They come and go and everyone experiences several bouts of them per year. And some, some people several bouts of them per week. They're associated with excitement most often. They're also associated sometimes with when food gets stuck on the way down your food pipe, your esophagus. And it may well be that the uh, peristalsis pushing the food down your esophagus irritates the phrenic nerve which supplies the diaphragm and causes this rhythmic spasm which is the hiccup which is where you try to draw breath in against a closed glottis which is your voice box and you get that <coughs> noise yep indeed you do it so well uh, a question here please ask the naked scientist if he thinks that humans are meant to eat animal products well, I, I think that humans, if you look back in history and what our ancestors do and what the animals most closely related to us do in terms of how they feed themselves, the answer is they are omnivorous and they eat a diet which is or accommodates all kinds of foodstuffs ranging from meats through to vegetables. And, and I suspect, therefore, that our six million years since we diverged away from, say, chimpanzees and bonobos, our closest ancestors, I suspect that in that time we, we have evolved and adapted to continue to eat that sort of diet. We have a digestive tract that's very good at handling that, that broad range of foodstuffs. And because we're so adaptable, it means we can eat exclusively a vegetarian diet. And, and as long as we make sure all the micronutrient needs are met, we're healthy. But equally, mm -hmm. um, we're very good at digesting meat as well. So I think, I think the answer to this is that we have evolved to give us the capacity to eat meat. And it's up to yeah. us to decide how much of it we want to eat. And how do researchers determine the medical properties of plants when there are so many different plants and so many different ailments? Well, the simple way to do this is, first of all, you go and listen to the locals. Because in communities where people have evolved in sync with their environment for thousands of years, there are very often useful bits of folklore which will point towards particular plants or particular species. And when you then test them, you can say, ah... Yes, this does appear to work, and then that narrows the search a bit. That, that sort of means that in search of, instead of searching millions of haystacks, you're searching one for the needle. But then what you can do is you can use modern medical techniques to say, well, we know what the disease is that this appears to be working on, so now we're going to go and look for all the chemicals which are in the product or in the plant, and we can narrow the search down into a range of molecules that biologically look like they might work in that context. And you start with a big number of molecules and slowly refine it down to a small number, and in the end, you, you home in on what the chemical is or what the, the, the product is that's in the plant that leads to that effect. So that's the, the most common way of doing it. Anne in Constantia, good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much for taking my questions. I know yes. you're in a hurry, so I've come to the point. What actually causes vertigo? Vertigo, the medical definition, is a sensation of rotation in the absence of movement. And this has something to do with the balance organ. You have in your inner ear your um, vestibular apparatus. These are the canals that contain fluid and projecting into the fluid are tiny hairs and those hairs are connected to your nervous system. And when you move your head, the fluid gets temporarily left behind because of inertia and it pushes on the hairs bending them, and when they bend, they change their electrical activity, which they then communicate to your brain via the nervous system. 
And for some reason that we don't properly understand, this is intrinsically bound up with other senses, such as the visual system, probably because it has to move uh, your eyes around in order to keep your eyes looking at the same target while you move your head around. And we don't really understand why, but when you are put into a situation where you look down from a very great height, this can make people feel giddy. But equally, if something goes wrong with the balance system, it then completely screws up your ability to move your eyes in the right direction and also to move all your balancing muscles. You have various connections between those vestibular systems and the muscles that control your posture. And when the signals coming from the vestibular system get screwed up, then you're unable to balance because all of the correcting manoeuvres that would normally be put in place, so if you started to fall one way, you'd move your muscles in the opposite direction to balance you. They go wrong, so you feel terribly unstable. And the only thing to do is to, to, is to lay down because you feel so awful. Yeah. And we, we don't know exactly why this happens. A range of medical conditions can lead to it. Um, but why the body should make us feel so ghastly and make us want to throw up when this happens, that's a, that's a totally different story and we just don't get that. Chris, thank you so much for your time. And by the way, as per your initial comment, uh, just after 9.30, we love the English. You beat New Zealand, which is very uh, well, important. Well, there is that, I suppose, yeah. And, 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 and we are allergic to New Zealand, most of us. <laughs> so th- there, there you go. You must have a good one, and I look forward to next week. Until next time. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.